Welcome to another episode of the PNR Churchman Podcast. I'm Pastor George. And what I have for you today is a crossover episode. My friend, Ryan Beasy, teaching elder in the PCA, who is the host of the Westminster Standard Podcast, invited myself and Pastor David Strain on a few weeks ago to discuss progressivism and progressivism in Christianity and progressivism in the PCA. And we really got into conversations around subscription. And so as this is a podcast for ruling elders that I do, and usually it's interviewing ruling elders, uh, but I thought it was applicable to the conversation because ruling elders serve in presbyteries and have to vote on men coming into uh, the PCA or the presbytery and their exceptions to the Westminster Standards. And so this conversation on subscription, how we hold that we subscribe to the Westminster Standards is very applicable to ruling elders. I hope you enjoy this. Thank you to my friend Ryan Beasy uh, for providing it for us and for inviting me to be on the podcast. And thank you to David Strain uh, for a great conversation. Hello and welcome to the Westminster Standard. I'm Ryan Beasy. This is the year of Machen, a century after the publication of J. Gresham Machen's monumental little book, Christianity and Liberalism, in which Machen clearly and decisively distinguishes between Christianity and theological liberalism or modernism. In his own day, theological liberals or modernists were trying to save Christianity from irrelevance. They considered themselves as taking part in an ancient tradition and to be the latest expression of that experience known as Christianity. But J. Gresham Machen clearly demonstrates modernism or theological liberalism is not one branch or one expression of Christianity, but in fact is the chief contemporary rival to Christianity. In this centennial year, many have drawn parallels between our own day and the challenges posed to Christianity by progressivism with uh, theological liberalism of a century ago. And while there are indeed many parallels and shared concerns between the progressivism of our day and the theological liberalism of the last century, we would do wrong to think that they are the same. It is too simplistic to think progressivism is simply theological liberalism by another name and in different clothing. There's a need for nuance to rightly understand both the errors of progressivism and the dangers it poses to Orthodox Catholic Christianity generally, and the Presbyterian Church in America in particular. And so please join me in welcoming two teaching elders. Uh, First, uh, the Reverend David Strain, pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, who recently shared some of his experiences with progressivism in the Kirk of Scotland as a young ministerial candidate, as well as teaching elder George Sayor, pastor of Meadowview Reform Presbyterian Church in Lexington, North Carolina. George has extensive experience uh, dealing with progressive and has written about his encounters in ministry with progressives and their creative use of language. I think his article was recently the number one uh, for the week in the Aquila Report. So welcome, brothers. Thank you for being here. Good to be here. Yes, thanks for having me on again, and good to be with David, as always. Uh, well, as, as we uh, consider these things about uh, progressivism, uh, We don't want to give the impression that progressivism is the only threat to the Presbyterian Church in America. We don't want to leave our right flank, so to speak, unprotected as we consider threats uh, coming from the left. And David, in your uh, lecture, which you gave at uh, Midway's Reformation and Worship Conference, you did very well in in reminding us of that fact. Uh, So what are some of the threats you see coming at us uh, from from the right uh, in terms of biblical Mm -hmm. faithfulness? Mm Mm-hmm. 
Good. It's a good question, isn't it? Just just even to be reminded that, uh, you know, as conservative Christians, there is a temptation as we fall in the, the broader conservative uh, movement in the United States, there's a real temptation to only look to the left of us for problems that 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 we we there's a there's a because that's often you know if you go to conservative now thinking about the political landscape if you go to conservative media outlets if you'd listen to them all 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 the problems are on the left as far as they're concerned and it's it's too easy i think and and wrong-headed and simplistic as conservative confessional presbyterians um to to think in that simple binary of left and right and uh, imagine that that uh, all the difficulties or challenges that can confront us in the church are coming from a, a progressive trajectory some are coming i i i I'm resistant to call it, or reluctant to call it, conservative directions because I think conservatism seeks to hold on to, and preserve and to conserve uh, confessional historic Presbyterianism, and I don't think that's right wing at all. Conservatism isn't right wing per se, um, but but from our right flank, there are things out there like Christian nationalism, which in some expressions of it at least trend towards thinly veiled, sometimes not so thinly veiled racism. Mm. Um, uh, you know, the, there's the, the old God and country sort of drape the cross and the American flag, uh, uh, blending Israel and America uh, sort of, an older version of of that sort of nationalism that's not the new Christian nationalism, but that that still hitches the Christian wagon to a Republican horse. Mm. Um, there's there's uh, just straight up materialism and affluence and comfort that tends often to go along with. Um, conservative uh, values and uh, social mores and we, we just need to be really I think humble and self-referential and recognize that um, we, we have a real temptation to only look to our left flank and and meanwhile on our right flank there are real dangers and real assaults there are, I mean, out there on in the world, on the, in, you know, I, I'm not on social media anymore, but I know that on social media there are those who are very happy to quote Bible verses, and sound or at least adopt the language of evangelical Christianity, in the in the sort of social, political, religious um, blogosphere and and Twitter sphere and Facebook and social media land. Uh, but who who actually have no meaningful connection to or submission to an orthodox local church, desire to live the Christian life in any, with any sort of rigor. The ethics of Christ, the Christian life doesn't seem to permeate their 
their day-to-day values, though they will happily talk about Judeo-Christian values and, and cite scripture, but it's 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 really all being used in support of a different agenda. And we we mustn't be naive about that. You know, the knife of of uh, historic confessional reformed orthodoxy needs to cut in both directions. Um, I had been asked to do this address on progressivism. It's probably not one that I would have chosen for myself. Um, it's not an easy topic, and there is. And so I started it the way that I did, just to make the point. Yeah. Well, you know, let 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 let's not engage in preaching to the choir, and and as a bunch of conservative Christians think that our only trouble lies with the the big bad lefties out there. Right. It's, it's not true. Right. Our, our stated clerk emeritus just a couple of years ago in Birmingham reminded us in his address uh, to the assembly that there are two ditches, right? One on the right and one on the left. And our our goal is to stay in the middle, in the in the narrow way, uh, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, uh, Jay Gresson Machen argued that liberalism and modernism uh, are not, is not Christianity. That they're, they're two different religions. Would you say that... Uh, Progressivism and Christianity are two different religions. Uh, George, jump in and save me anytime. Um, <laughs> I might need saving for myself here, but but I, well, let me start by saying it depends what you mean by progressivism. Yeah, and and that's part of our challenge in this discussion, isn't it? Because the language we're using is not a technical; it's not technical language, and so there's not a single definition. So if you do a, if you do an internet search for progressive Christianity, you're likely to land on websites that take their cues from figures like Richard Rohr and from a sort of very avant-garde. They're sort of the latest iteration of the emerging or emergent church. They 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 maybe started from a more orthodox conservative place and have moved um, jettisoning things like biblical inerrancy. Um, uh, but embracing mysticism, um, often much more inclusive of the transgender and LGBTQ spectrum of of, uh, issues, Um, often universalistic in their views of salvation, often uncomfortable with penal substitution, the language of cosmic child abuse and that sort of thing has become popular. That's one version of progressivism, Sometimes, and particularly in the PCA, the word progressive is used um, because we struggle to have vocabulary for our different camps to talk about the left flank of the PCA. Um, And that's problematic in some ways because these guys don't resemble the, the, the sort of progressive Christianity that, for example, Michael Kruger in his really helpful little book, The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, uh, is is challenging. These guys are are not progressives in that sense. They believe in inerrancy. They believe in penal substitution. They believe in sin and hell and the wrath of God. They believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They believe in the basic tenets of supernatural uh, orthodox Christianity. Um, and and so I would say that the the, the there are a spectrum. So the one extreme of the progressive spectrum looks very much like a version of the kind of liberalism that Machen was engaging with. Um, but that shades all the way back to um, a conservative evangelicalism 
that is that is sort of progressively inflected, <laughs> that that has that has that has some of the flavor, some of the the atmosphere without buying into necessarily the core um, value system. These are still Orthodox Christian brothers, um, and uh, uh, yeah, so. It's a it's a challenge. It's yeah, too easy yeah. to say progressivism is a different religion, because right, right. That's like depends on what you mean. That, that's yeah. That's that's like saying, um, you know, Armenians are have a different is a different religion. Hmm. Well, that's not right. We, we have to make fine distinctions between yeah. what's true and false, and how far does um, a theological difference enter into the the core of what it means to be a faithful christian at all we have to do theological triage yeah um, and make some key distinctions well i i think i think in your talk you you explained how you're not speaking about progressivism in the uh, political sense you're speaking mm -hmm. of it in the religious sense and then within right. within christianity there's that there's that spectrum uh, i do think if if there's a venn diagram and you you allude to this there there is an overlap and I think it's because progressivism is becoming like an encompassing worldview, culturally speaking. Mm -hmm. And so in, in a desire for uh, Christians and, and conservative evangelical Christians to reach a culture, there, there's an adoption sort of, of of some language practices and some ways to view things. Right. Uh, re really fitting in with like Newbegin's uh, missiology of how to be in the culture and speak the language of the right. culture. And that's where I think the issue is in the PCA. I mean, I want to say from the from the out front, yeah, I don't believe we have liberals in the PCA and we don't have uh, like if you go to progressivechristianity.org.com, right. nothing right. in the PCA resembles that. But much of how things are being communicated uh, start to bump up against against that and create obfuscation and confusion rather than clarity if we're talking about in our own context. Mm -hmm. so that's, mm -hmm. and, but I do think like you called it uh, like a moderate progressive evangelicalism. And so I think there would be a difference between progressive Christianity and what what is called evangelicalism today. And, and so there's sort of this blending, this moderate progressive yeah. evangelicalism that has sympathies, you said. Um, mm -hmm. So... Yeah. I think that's good. I, I think sometimes we see, uh, especially in certain parts of the country where you know, you're living in a deeply post-Christian cultural context where progressivism in the full-orbed, secular, ideological sense is the norm in the school system, in the neighborhood that you live in, in your working environment. And there's a real temptation um, driven by, I think, good missiological motives mm -hmm. to be a conservative Christian wearing progressive clothes, as it were, to, to adopt the, the style, the, the aesthetic, the atmosphere, the, the, to use the language, sometimes reinterpreting the vocabulary of progressivism, um, while still holding on to our 
uh, orthodox convictions. That's not always absolutely and entirely and in every context a wrong thing to do, to to learn and to penetrate the the language of the culture that you're ministering in the midst of and, and to try to uh, speak that language fluently in order to speak to those people well, that's a wise and appropriate thing to do. The, the, the question is, how far will we allow the, the core concepts and deep structures that shape and inform the worldview to begin to reconfigure our own um, theology? And that can sometimes happen very subtly. Um, and there's just su- there's just some ways of speaking that and and framing the gospel that we need to be more careful about, especially the therapeutic turn mm. that seems to be everywhere in the culture. That mm. that that is a real concern to me. Well, so you know, along those lines with with the language, so we we need to be able to speak the language of the culture. I think the problem exists that there's a different there, there's one there, there's a set of words that have two meanings depending on you know in confessional surf circles conservative circles we mean a very specific set of things when we use a word and the culture means a different set of things and i think there's i think many are, are too comfortable using the culture's lingo in such ways that makes no distinction between what they mean by it and what we mean by it and that allows people to in the courts of the church saying no no i believe uh confessional orthodox things but it Mm -hmm. allows people hearing it in the culture to not uh raise any red flags about what's being said right you know one of the things that uh, i've heard a number of times is that our worship and our our church culture should be in in some ways shockingly foreign uh to an unbeliever that they should come in and be in awe that god really is among you but on the other hand, you know, when Paul in Athens, you know, he's quoting from the Greek poets. So he's he's clearly a man who knows the city, who knows the culture, but accommodates, if we can use if we can use that word, in some way without compromising uh, the message. Uh, in right. a, in a recent episode uh, of another podcast, David, uh, you you said that you know message and mission are are both equally paramount. And I think that's something that that often gets lost in in, in these sorts of uh, discussions. So, what would you say are some of the distinguishing features of progressivism among evangelical, even confessional communions? Uh, you mentioned the therapeutic replacing confessional categories. Mm-hmm. Are there any other yellow flags that we might need to take note yeah. of in yeah. congregations? Yeah, I think I think when. This is always the case, regardless of the particular movement or label we want to use, whether it's progressivism or or something else. I think you could probably trace this throughout the history of the church. But when the concerns of the culture are the constant concerns of the church, shaping the subject matter of our preaching, um, you know, when, when the concerns of the culture start to function like a a filter for our message so that the the concerns of the culture drive what we're going to be concerned about um then then i think we ought to have some flags going up 
that's not, that's not to say, let me try and nuance that a little bit. That's not to say that uh, the concerns of the culture shouldn't be responded to and engaged with biblically. Um, but, but what I'm talking about is when the concerns of the culture are often mirrored, when we're adopting those concerns um, and our posture is one of aligning ourselves with society as much as we can um, and often that's done, the way that's often done is to say, well, we want the only offense we ever give to be the offense of the cross. Amen to that. We won't, the only offense we want to give is the offense of the cross. But what they take that to mean is we never want to speak critically or challengingly or prophetically to the besetting sins of the culture um, unless we absolutely must. Uh, um, instead, we'll present the cross in such a way that it it often is the the answer to the narrative arc that the culture itself already has. The cross is the answer to every everyone's story. And there's the, what's tricky about all of this is there's so much truth in so much of it. It's just it's I keep finding myself saying and there's there's another paragraph. There's another couple of sentences there's a bit more here um therapeutic language um uh, identity politics um certainly the lgbtq debates in the pc i think have exposed some of these concerns um i i don't think that we have any i, I agree with george we have no old-fashioned liberals I, i'm not even sure we have any um full bore 100% proof progressives um, yeah. uh, in, the, in the PCA, though I do think that the LGBTQ debate early on, I think we have a lot more unanimity now across the board on what we believe about human sexuality and about things like concupiscence and original sin and so on. Praise God for that. But it took us a long time to get there and it exposed along the way um, some some lines of argument, some individuals in our ranks that really took a different approach, and and it was alarming to me. To how did we get there? How how did that? How was that even possible? And I, and I think it's because uh, another buzzword is contextualization. What is the nature and what are the limits of proper contextualization? How far should the world's agenda, the culture, the receptor culture that we're trying to reach, how should, how far should that determine our vocabulary, our language, our ministry, our priorities, our values? And I think that's where um, I certainly would, would have some really significant differences with some of my brothers mm. um, in, in the PCA. Um, I, I think that, I think in the talk I talk about, uh, you know, presenting the worm and hiding the hook as a, as a, a sort of missiological strategy that I think is flawed ultimately. Um, that, that truly progressive non-Christians who buy that whole paradigm lock, stock and barrel, they, they're not deceived by that. But instead, I think they view us as manipulative and they already think of evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, as hateful and uh, 
you know, untrustworthy. And when they see us doing the, you know, hiding the hook, they're 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 not they're not biting, and and they just they're just saying, see, I told you, you can't trust yeah. these people. They're not being straightforward. They really don't agree with us, and they really do think that, you know, homosexuality is a sin, and that Islam is a wicked idolatry, and that there's only one way of salvation in Christ, and you know that 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 women are not to be serving in office in in the church in any way, and you know, and 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 and, and all the the the, the litany of of uh, politically unacceptable things that we affirm, socially unacceptable things. These people are, they're just trying to hide that from us. Who are they, who are they trying to kid? We're being manipulated. And it's ultimately, I think, missiologically going to backfire. You know, there, were, there was a, a pretty famous uh, political analyst, Kirsten Powers, just wrote an article about that, about what she considered the the bait and switch, and we don't need to say what church or whatever, but that she never heard from the what what, what I'm bringing up here is that she never heard from the pulpit any any of those things that you you mentioned, you know, the view on yep. sexuality, view on women in leadership, view on uh, abortion, any of those things, and uh, I'm I'm not going to fault that church, but where I'm bringing the segue in is usually we hear from our brothers who maybe disagree with us on some of this stuff that it's you know, we, we need the, the freedom to be able to do mission and mission is messy. And so this is like how they're doing mission in the culture and how they're engaging the culture. But the problem I found is it makes its way into the worship service because the worship service, rather than being geared for the covenant community that gathers and worships, and of course, everybody's welcome, but it's so strongly tailored to the, uh, to the seeker, to the, non-believer to the culture that you're not really even giving meat to your congregation and you're confusing the culture. Like, like I'd be all for a soft approach in the culture. If when you get them in the doors to the church, not a hard approach, but a truthful, clear approach in, mm -hmm. in the teaching of the word. But you know, you, you highlighted that throughout your talk specifically about what I'll call the emphasis. I'm not sure what you word you used, but you said things like we affirm this, but you never hear about that. In other words, there's a certain emphasis that, mm -hmm. that comes about, like you, you said in this quote, I thought it was just great. I wrote it down, but when we are constantly preoccupied with questions of inclusion, when power dynamics and identity politics shape how we think and speak, when therapeutic categories fill our sermons, and it, and it goes on and on. And you just talk about how then the worldly, the, the worldview of the world ends up being the sermon. And so now we're leaving missiology and we're coming into, it, it's affected the ecclesiology. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think that there's some uncritical um, sort of faddishness. So, so some of this is, is, very thoughtfully done, very purposefully. Some of this is real strategy. These are guys saying, how do I reach my complicated um, post-Christian um, sort of very lefty uh, uh, community with the gospel? I, I So I'm going to really study their values, study their language, study the, the, the authors that they're reading, the music that they're listening to, I'm going to I'm going to enter that culture as much as I can 
and there's a lot of wisdom in that but then there's then there's some of those problems start creeping in that you've just described george some of those guys are being very purposeful about it but there's a lot i think that are that are looking to leaders that have done this um some of them have done it very well and responsibly some less so but they've grown churches they've developed a following and so we're we're prone to just say well i'll just I'll just sort of take off the peg and and mimic what they're doing without actually thinking through the the philosophical ideological philosophy of ministry th theological underpinnings that go along with that um and and so for example i think there's just the assumption that if i talk about human brokenness i'm still talking about sin um and so i don't need to use the sin word I can just say we're all broken. And certainly there's an overlap, right, between human brokenness and what the Bible describes as sin. But sin is a much bigger category and has both forensic and existential and experiential components to it. Brokenness tends to just focus on what's wrong with me and my relationship with you. Mm. Um, or maybe and what's wrong with me and my relationship with God, but it it still tends to put the focus, the emphasis on on me. Um, sin, however, is fundamentally, you know, Psalm fifty one against you, you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. Even though David has lied, he's failed his people, he's committed adultery, he's committed murder, he's he's wounded any number of human relationships. The sinfulness of his sin is derived from the offense against a holy God. And if we cannot and do not clearly communicate that God is angry with sin and with sinners, but instead only say, we're all broken, we're confused, we're mixed up, um, you know, our marriages are struggling, our home lives are struggling, our society is in a terrible mess. What's the solution? The solution is Jesus. That's our message. Jesus now becomes a means, a therapeutic means to an end. And, and brothers, Jesus just will not be used. Amen. Jesus, Jesus is not merely the means. He is a means. He, he's God's instrument of our deliverance. But he's also the end. He is himself what god gives us in the gospel yeah pray, and, praise god yeah i so the the brokenness language and and you know it's almost like they take what the and you as you said sin is is much more complex and full orb than brokenness brokenness can kind of take the responsibility off of the the person but right. it it often is is a word that's used to kind of just include every problem so that the confessional say that as a result of the fall, we have the miseries of this life mm. and sin, you know, mm. in other words, and, and what I've seen is as, as everything is being described as broken, now you have sin yeah, being compared to, you know, paraplegia or, or barrenness. And so, uh, you know, my sinful desire or my sinful proclivity, which, which we would say come from our fallen nature, original sin, that's the same thing as being a cripple, uh, physically crippled or, or born barren. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a, just, a, it's a category mistake. It's all a part right. of the fall. 
Right. But one group is part of the miseries of this life. And the other group, we have moral, there's moral and ethical implications to it. Right. And that's, that's just getting missed in the conversation. Yeah, you're not culpable if you're merely sick. But if you're bad, you're culpable. And we believe we're not just born biased towards badness. We're born bad. And yes. I was just reading it this morning in, in Mark's gospel, that it's not what comes into us from outside that defiles a person, Jesus said, but rather from what comes from within, from the heart. Uh, yeah, and, that, and that, that discussion was particularly raised in the LGBTQ revoice debates in the PCA. What is original sin and how is it different from actual sin? How is temptation and sin? How are they related? What is concupiscence? And uh, we, I think we found our way as a denomination, and praise the Lord for this, towards good clarity on that. Um, but it took us a long time, and some, especially early in those discussions, the debates were really alarming. Indeed. Yeah, I wonder how much of the candor of, of some particular individuals uh, serve to perhaps even awaken those on the left flank uh, of the PCA, uh, almost to shock them into, wait a minute, this is this is going in a very bad direction. I know uh, some leaders in the progressive portion of the PCA, uh, not implying that they're not Christians, but have actually come back and acknowledged some culpability in enabling that trajectory to go as far as it did. And so I wonder if, in a way, that debate wasn't helpful uh, to re uh, to help us re-engage with what our confessional documents already say. You know, the the frustration I think some of us, maybe all of us here, ha have had is that these these ideas, these guardrails, were already in our standards. Why why was this even an issue? I, I know I had a a, a conversation. Yeah, and about. I think, but I think I think Ryan that there's plenty of blame to go around there. Uh, you know, I think the, the church goes through phases where it faces different controversies. And sometimes we're still facing the direction of the previous assault uh, when a new assault comes. And it takes us a while to to turn around and, and sort of uh, realign the troops for the new, the new direction of attack. And... Um, you know, I think about I think about, for example, the eternal subordination of the sun debate that that's happened hasn't really been a major uh, cause of strife in the PCA, but it has been a significant debate in evangelicalism in the United States for some time, um, particularly in in Baptist circles. Um, but if you read Knowing God. There are there's at least one or two spots in there where G.I. Packer uh, talks about the son's eternal submission to the father as the model and basis for a wife's submission to her husband. Um, and and even the very best of us are are sometimes not as precise as we would be because we're fighting other battles at the time. 
and and so in the mercy of God and his providence, he brings controversy to the church so that every one of us, conservative or otherwise, um, are, are forced to think through more carefully what we think about sin and grace, concupiscence, original sin, temptation, all of those those issues. And I've, I've been very grateful to God for the way that the PCA, and I think you're right, all sides have had to sharpen some distinctions and really drill down and do some more exegesis and, and go back to key texts and say, what is the difference between Jesus' temptation and our temptations? Where does sin enter into this picture? And and really parse that out carefully. And that's been very useful in God's great providence. And I think I think while some have left the PCA over this issue, um, most have stayed and are now saying what our study committee report says, which is what our reformed forebears have always said on these issues. I'm grateful for that. But I, I do think, and I, I think I make this point in the lecture, that um, the debate along the way, I think, exposed some of our vulnerabilities um, and some of the ways that perhaps our contextualizing sort of missional brothers may be vulnerable to uh, so inclining to the care of and reaching the lost that they are very reluctant to make hard, draw hard lines at times and, and draw clear distinctions. And, and that's been a painful debate in the PCA, I think. Um, yeah. You know, liberals in the 20th century preferred to fight their battles, as Machen called it, in that condition of low visibility, because mm -hmm. they didn't want their congregants to know where they, what they really believed on this, on the scripture or on uh, miracles. Well, now in the, in the 21st century, progressive evangelicals also seem to want that condition of low visibility, but with, with more honorable motives, I think, because they, they don't want to, um, offend the culture right away, they, they want to draw them in and so speak in less clear terms about sin and, and call it uh, brokenness. But as, as you've been articulating, there's also a concern, I think, that, that we have regarding the health of the, of the sheep, that when the sheep aren't mm -hmm. fed clearly with these biblical, confessional, historic categories, uh, then they may not understand the core of the issue. If the problem with my marriage is that I'm just, I'm married to a broken person and I'm a broken person, as opposed to the problem with my marriage is, is my own sin. Now, those, those are going to have different uh, approaches. Um, so um, you, you warned us in that, in that address uh, that uh, progressivism is often a jumping off point toward uh, anti-confessionalism or, or to lose those confessional uh, moorings. What are some ways that you would see we can bring confessional categories, confessional language into preaching, teaching, and counseling? I, <laughs> I don't think it's that's a difficult thing. I think you do it by doing it. I mean, we have these riches. Let's let's not leave them like you know your grandma's china gathering dust in a cabinet someplace. They are they are meant to be used. So let's use them. I will say that I th I think 
the the catechism the catechisms have a utility today that we need uh, more than ever especially the larger catechism the, the the ethics of the larger catechism that's a the, the exposition of the ten commandments is a gold mine um and are people re i mean the, the ethical quandaries the complexity of it with sexuality with the the continued divorce rates with just the challenges to and assaults on Christian family, Christian values are so many, so varied now, so complex. Our people desperately need ethical discipleship. They need good moral theology. And we have those resources. Um, I mean, our, our, one of the things was we've been talking about the human sexuality report that the PCA did, which is just, again, so helpful. It models really well how our ethics and our practical theology is rooted deeply in in systematic theology, in doctrinal categories, in the doctrine of God, in theological anthropology, the doctrine of man, in hamartiology, the, the doctrine of sin, in soteriology, the doctrine of Christ and the doctrine of salvation. And in other words, our ethics, our, our moral theology on questions of human sexuality touches almost every point along the way the whole system of Christian conviction about God, man, Christ, the world, salvation, sin, and so on. And our confessions and catechisms do a masterful job of wedding uh, doctrine and practice. What man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. Um, but right, those are, the, those are the two parts of the catechism. Mm -hmm. And they are, they're really well integrated. What we are to believe and how we are to live, the, the former is the seedbed of the latter. Mm. The latter grows out of the former. And, and I, I'm not sure there's a better resource or tool um, to help us do that concisely and well than, than teaching through our catechisms, citing them and preaching. You might even preach through sections of the catechism. Um, uh, you know, I, when I taught through the Ten Commandments, the larger catechism's exposition of the Ten Commandments was my constant uh, companion in that. Indeed. Um, and, yeah, so I, people need to hear us talk about and use the language of our confession and catechisms in our preaching and teaching all the time. And it's, it's in our, so in our praying. simple. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I... Yeah, George, they, I don't know if you'll. Uh, I mean, will you have people, you know, read and re and and respond to the shorter catechism in the middle of a sermon, or something like? You know, it's in the back of our hymnal. If you've got we, the, we do it as part of our declaration of faith quite uh, regularly. Mm -hmm. Yes, mm -hmm. and um, I, I love what you just said there because what man is to believe about God, so doctrine, and what God requires of man, so ethics, and so often I, I've seen on Twitter. When, when somebody would say, you know, the my philosophy of ministry or the Westminster standards, and people would mock that and say, what do you mean? And it's, well, because if you really get what's being taught there, not just the constituent parts, but how the parts fit into the whole, so the system and the parts, you recognize that there is a philosophy of ministry there. And, but I, I do think 
that's been lacking and a lacking emphasis uh, in our own denomination, even though we're mm-hmm. rooted in it. And I remember the GRN conference, your talk, uh, David, two and a half years ago, where it was a talk on it, it was a conference on progressivism within the PCA. And and your talk was on uh, subscription and confessionalism. And mm-hmm. I, I was just like, well, I agree with everything David's saying in that talk, but I'm I'm not sure how that's connecting to like, how does somebody taking you know, the, the recreation exception in the Sabbath and, and, and maybe images in children's Bibles, like how is that connected to uh, what we're seeing with revoice, you know, and, and it took me a, a while, but, but I see it. I, I see again, not the specifically, if you take the recreation clause, but just in general, our approach to the confession, right. our approach to the catechisms affects how we view the other stuff. Right. So. That's right. Yeah. Actually, maybe you could speak on that a little bit. Like, how do you view subscription related to related to progressivism um, or even progressive p- proclivities within within our own circles? Like, how do you view confessionalism related to that? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think the I think I say this in that talk that you're referencing from the GRN a couple of years ago. Um, when the confession and catechisms are reduced merely to the 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 fence you have to jump over you know like the fairground ride you've got to be yay high to get on this ride if that's all the confession and catechisms are you know you if you want to ride the pca roller coaster you gotta you gotta be taller than this if that's all they are to us and then we never read them again we never think about them they're not actually informing our piety our prayers our preaching, our pastoring, our discipleship, our mentoring of new leaders. Um, th- then, I, then I think we are really vulnerable theologically to all sorts of assaults from all kinds of directions, not just progressivism. Because at that point, the, the confession and catechisms are nothing more than a shibboleth. They're a dead letter. Um, and what what we confess about them, the vows that we take, is that this is the confession of my own faith. That mm. this is the sense in which our denomination understands the Bible. This is the teaching of God's word that we agree together fairly represents what the what the holy scriptures are teaching us. And um t- t- I don't know how we then hold them as loosely as sometimes I fear we do, that whenever you sit down to preach, you, you should be thinking, how is there are there any confessional resources that I can use here? How can I keep this in front of my people? How can I keep it for my own soul's sake? Um, because this is the faith once for all delivered to the saints, clarified, codified, simplified, articulated, so very helpfully um, that as Presbyterians we confess and um, our confession becomes an empty thing when it's when it's just when it's just a shibboleth it's just a, a, a hoop to jump through in order to get in the door to get ordained um, and you know sometimes what that you see that in ordination exams when there's a sort of waved wave people get waved through there's a in some presbyteries it's a sort of a shrug 
and a wink and a he's a good guy and he's one of us and let's not ask too many questions. Um, and or even worse when, as I know of from firsthand experience, someone comes in who has no exceptions and is then essentially accused of lying because they can't possibly have read the standards if they don't have exceptions. So that the the exception now in that presbytery is not having any differences with the standards. And the problem person is the one who doesn't differ from the standards. So, so if you simply affirm what the PCA as a denomination affirms, now let me remind you, the PCA as a denomination has no declared differences. That's right. Our denomination says the Westminster Standard and Catechisms, Westminster Confession and Catechisms, is our subordinate standard as a whole. Our, our constitutional languages are accepted as standard expositions. Yes, scripture. standard expositions. BCO 29.1. Right. Yeah. So yeah. That, I've, I've, yeah. I've had those discussions with, I said, when you, when you declare a difference, it's not, you get a menu of, of options of what the PCA believes. The PCA believes what the standards say, and right. we may grant you an exception to your wrong belief. And they, they, they right. take offense at that. And I say, right. I, and they're saying, well, you're saying the confession is uh, inerrant. I said, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the, the PCA is a denomination has never declared anything in there as as wrong. So that's what we believe is a denomination, not right. this menu of options. And yes, I, I've experienced that too, sadly, where where men are viewed with suspicion or or have uh, too strong a view of the perspicuity of scripture if they're uh, not taking exceptions. And and one dear brother that we all know, one of the founders of the denomination told me, he goes, you know, the denomination started as a strict subscription. Then it became good faith subscription. Then it went to system subscription. Now it seems like we're going to, he says, now it seems like we're going to exceptions subscription. If you don't subscribe to my exception, you might not be able to get ordained. Right. And of course he's speaking hyperbolically, but yep. th there is, there is a, a new vibe that says, you must accept my exception. And I've, right. I've, I've witnessed that. And it's like, why do I have to accept your exception? I, I mean, right. <laughs> so. right. That's right. Well, there's, there's doctrinal indifferentism and then there's latitudinarianism, which is hard to say. <laughs> and, uh, but often there are two sides of the same coin. I think it was Charles Hodge a century and a half ago, who said, you know, the difference between the old school men and the new school men isn't necessarily uh, in what they believe as much mm -hmm. as what the new school men are willing to accept. And, you know, right. uh, you know, that's something that we need to guard against, that doctrinal indifferentism. And you noted it in, in the Kirk in your own mm -hmm. uh, personal experience, David. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in, indifferentism is often, I think, most commonly found amongst tired good brothers who believe all the right things, who are good men, and they're just burnt out, and they're weary, or they're temperamentally disinclined mm. for a fight. And I, I count myself, believe it or not, I count myself among that group. I, I've, I've only spoken once on the floor of General Assembly in... 15 years, nearly 16 years of being in the PCA. Um, that's that's not something I'm proud of. It, it's just that to admit I'm scared to death of it. I don't like 
public controversy and debate. I'm, I'm not wired for it. So when I have to do it, it's because I feel compelled to do it. And I, I hope I do it with charity and, and with a desire to listen and represent those that I'm disagreeing with well. But indifferentism, I think, is, is the sort of, look, things are fine where I am. My presbytery is solid. My congregation is secure. We are never going to get swept along in this direction or that direction. So, you know, let those guys in Atlanta say what they like. Let those guys in, you know, whichever presbytery in some other part of the country say what they like. Let the General Assembly make its pronunciations and, and declarations. We're just going to keep on trucking quite happily where we are. And who cares? And... Um, that's how that's how the Southern Church got into the mess it was in at the time of the formation of the PCA. It, it was overwhelmingly conservative, um, and yet within ten years of the founding of the PCA, many of those churches that were conservative that didn't leave and joined the PCA and stayed with the PCUS had very liberal female pastors and swung and now are closed or dying uh, or are, there's no gospel there. There's uh, the shrug and, and someone else will do it sort of attitude is, is it just won't do it. It's actually not obedient in the end. Yeah. It's not obedient. That doesn't mean that we should, there's something temper temperamentally, wrong with people who love the fight, who live for battle. Those people ought to be bound and gagged. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 the people who, who get off on a good fight in the denomination are trouble. They're trouble. And they don't actually help us. They don't do a good job. Everyone just sort of rolls their eyes and, um, but but I hate to use the phrase good faith, but <laughs> engaging in debate in good faith with respect, honoring our opponents, representing them as they would represent themselves, um, and picking our battles carefully, deciding what's really worth fighting over at this point. Um, that's the nature of good churchmanship. And churchmanship, I think, amongst some who identify as conservatives, can get a bad name. Mm. It's viewed as compromising. And uh, I, I'd want to say that I am not among those who adopt a, an all or nothing approach to, to this, that if I can get 100% of what I believe the ideal solution or outcome ought to be, then I'm, I'm not interested. Uh, you, that's just not how sausage gets made. That's not how overtures pass. That's not how. That's not how we move the needle. Um, that's not the, biblical the, polity. It's not in the end. I is that is that why uh, I think in your in the podcast you did with uh, David Cassidy you called it disciplined pragmatism. Yeah, disciplined pragmatism or or principled compromise. Those two words I like principled compromise because. <laughs> uh, people think they are mutually incoherent and incompatible. 
but the Westminster standards are an example of principled compromise where you've got men of very different persuasions about a number of issues uh, who come together and compromise, sometimes on really significant doctrinal um, and practical points. And the, the, the Westminster uh, documents as a whole are expressions of godly, thoughtful, principled compromises. Men come together with shared core convictions trying to work out a platform that they can all affirm. And I think we've seen some of that. I think, again, the sexuality report is a good example of that. I think we've got some overtures coming through uh, our presbyteries right now that are examples of attempted principled compromise. And we've got, we've got to keep working at that. Um, that's charitable. It's godly. There will always be, and it's helpful that there is, diversity and a spectrum of opinion and approach within the PCA. Um, some of us are, are sort of doctrine guys and we're always about doctrine and some of us are very evangelistically minded and deeply burdened for the lost. Some of us are, are missions guys. Some of us are, are, are sort of expositors and that's our whole frame of reference. And we help each other and we balance each other and we check each other and we push each other for clarity, for mission, for ministry. And when the PCA is doing that well, that's when we're at our very, very best. Um, and I'm I'm full of optimism, actually, and hope that the PCA will continue uh, and get better and better at doing that. That that um, that we we stop seeing differences of emphasis as actually different sides or different parties. Now, when there are genuine theological and philosophical differences, that's a slightly different matter. I'm not talking about that. But when someone is burdened for the lost, I need that brother to challenge me when I get overly concerned only about doctrinal precision. And he needs me, lest his burden for the lost lead him to pure pragmatism, where as long as I'm telling people about Jesus, the ends always justify the means. Um, and, and I think the PCA, maybe overall, in its 50 years of history, has has done that. We've, we've sort of checked each other, um, and we've not always all been happy with how that's, that's sort of worked out. And we need to keep working at that, for sure. But, but I'm hopeful that we can manage it. Yeah, and if you look at where the PCA was uh, 50 years ago and where she is now, I think PresbyCast recently did an episode on worship at the General Assembly, uh, which was scandalous in some of those early years and has, has mm. gotten so much better um, even even in the last uh, five years in terms of being distinctively reformed. Uh, you know, I, I don't think we're there yet, but I, I think you know, it's gotten a lot better. I mean, there was there was a, a pledge to the American flag at an early uh, assembly. There was ballet dancing. There was all sorts of things that would just that would make the rest of my hair fall out. And and, and yet now we're we're looking at uh, we're in a much better place because of of how we've worked together. I think uh, that we've held one another accountable. And even even good faith subscription, which 
if it's truly good faith subscription, I'm comfortable with that. I mean, that may that may scandalize people, but if, if good faith subscription, which you know those words don't appear in our, our Constitution, I don't think, but if it is in good faith, this is my difference, and I have no other differences other than the ones I'm bringing to you, that the rest of the system isn't impacted, I'm very comfortable with that. In fact, yeah, I, I wouldn't want to be... Close, that's very close to what... Um, you know, old Princeton and our, our fathers w- would have affirmed. It's very close to, I think, properly understood what strict subscription in a healthy model In a healthy be, way. Which is, you know, we, we adhere strictly to the teaching of the confession and we will assess any exceptions which ought to be exceptional, but we will assess them carefully and determine whether or not to permit them to be held at all or even whether or not to be taught, even if permitted to be held. Um, but but you do that in good faith, which again, as you rightly point out, Ryan, is not in our constitution. So I'm not sure we're bound by bound to call it that. Um, but uh, you know, we we subscribe in good faith. You should take me at my word that I adhere to everything else in the standards. Um, and I think that's good. I think that's a healthy yeah. uh, way to approach this. You know, I come from a strict subscription denomination, which in the Scottish context means no exceptions of any kind are ever permissible. And that sounds really, really hardcore, but actually what it results in is a sort of unspoken gentleman's agreement that um, all sorts of diversity is allowable uh, and, and language games starts getting start getting played, and people do sort of mental gymnastics to justify their views, and and so this this allows honesty, hmm. you know, forthrightness. Here here are my differences. I'm actually compelled, in my own words, to declare them to you. I don't determine whether it's a difference. You determine presbytery or session if it's an elder or a deacon or. Um, you determine court of the church whether this is a, a problem or not, and if it is, of what kind. Um, that's a that's a really healthy thing. Um, but it goes back to your earlier question, George, about how we understand the role of the standards as to whether that system functions well or not. If our view of the standards is they're merely the gatekeepers, it's merely that you must be yay high to you know, get on the PCA ride. Um, and I know, Ryan, you're a little small fella, so, so <laughs> sorry. But uh, you must be yay high to get on the get on this ride. Um, that's that's the quote of this episode. You must through your whole life, Ryan. Um, uh, <laughs> but, but if that's all the standards are, then uh, these discussions become at presbytery level, they, be, they become really dysfunctional. Um, and, but if the standards are precious, living, vital, informing our teaching, our piety, uh, they, they, they articulate their standard, as you put it, as the, the Constitution puts it, standard expositions of the Bible for us. If that's how they really are, then exceptions become really serious matters that we weigh and 
and scrutinize and assess with a great deal of care. I worry, honestly, that there are two or three exceptions now that are sort of, quote, standard, that we just sort of shrug and wave through. And the result is that we're not paying enough attention to the particular way those exceptions are being taken. Sometimes the exception isn't to the larger catechism's language or, um, you know, sometimes we're taking an exception to the fourth commandment or to the second commandment. Yeah, We're not actually taking an exception to uh, an application of that commandment and or a particular way of framing the, the message of that commandment. And we, we do need to be careful. Yeah, I, I, I've been made aware of a, a person who does not believe where when when our confession says that the uh, the Lord's Day is the Christian Sabbath, he does not believe this. He doesn't believe that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath, right? And then I say, well, on what basis then do we have any anything in the fourth in what the confession says about the fourth commandment to follow? But but not just that. And then in what basis do we have? on the confession's entire exposition of what the moral law is. I mean, you can't pull one of the 10 out and then say you hold to all these other things because now you've, you've broken the system. But again, they treat it as um, the constituent parts. I can throw this part out and that part out and not realize there's a ripple effect that goes all the way to how the confession views what does God require of man, you know? Yeah. And the question of system, use that word system. That's a really critical point of difference um, within still within the PCA, I believe that the confession and catechisms are the system. I do not believe that there's a system somewhere to be found inside the confession and catechisms. When we talk about the system contained in, we're using language borrowed from um, the confession itself when it talks about the word of God contained in the scriptures. It doesn't mean that the word of God is in there somewhere and you got to go find it. That mm. some part or subset of scripture is the word of God, but not all of it. Um, rather, it's saying the, the word of God is contained in the scriptures in such a way as to exhaust the scriptures, that every part of the scriptures contains the word of God. And I, I believe that the system of doctrine contained in the confession and catechisms is contained in it in such a manner that it exhausts the confession and catechisms, that every part of the confession and catechisms represents a necessary, vital element of that system. And so when something strikes at the system, it's hostile to the system, as we are sometimes required to say of a, a declared difference, what we're saying isn't just that it uh, undermines some subset of confessional doctrines less than the confession itself. What we're saying is that, that this destroys the basic integrity and comprehensibility and interconnectedness of the Westminster standards as a whole. And that goes back to our earlier point about the way in which the confession and catechisms um, articulate our moral theology arising out of our 
theology proper, our mm. anthropology, our, our systematic, our doctrinal theology, that what man is to believe concerning God gives rise to what duty God requires of man. It's an integrated, coherent system, all the parts reflecting and touching on every other. So if you deny that the Sabbath, that the Lord's Day is the Sabbath, that doesn't simply touch on the interpretation of the fourth commandment. That goes to the question of, as you rightly put it, the moral law. Do you believe that Christ radically transforms the moral law itself? Um, and therefore, you now have questions about continuity and discontinuity between the old covenant and the new. There's a whole string, a cascade of massive it's a house of, of cards, meta structural yeah. theological concerns here that are bound up with that conclusion. Uh, for myself, I could not vote for that uh, for that brother to be do you do you think is there a different what I'm seeing now is that good faith and system, so good faith subscription and system subscription are used synonymous. Are they the same thing? Absolutely not. So can you explain the difference? I would love to have that. I would love for you to do that. Well, I can try. I mean, again, part of the problem here again is that these are not constitutional phrases where That's we right. have a definition in our books anywhere. That's right. So my understanding of system subscription is the view that I was just opposing Mm -hmm. that says that there's a system of Reformed theology somewhere in the Westminster Confession and Catechisms that, has, that is nowhere articulated or defined, um, that is a subset of, you know, of our confessional statements, but the denomination doesn't tell you what it is. There's a system, but we're not going to tell you what that system is. It's just sort of in there and we all are supposed to know what it is. And the fourth Which commandment might not be vital to Might not be system. vital to it. Is it just the five points of Calvinism plus baptism, infant baptism? Is that the system? Is it? Is it a particular doctrine of God? Is it, can you be a four-point Calvinist? Uh, can you be an Amiraldian? And, you know, it's, it becomes really tricky, right? Really tricky. Um uh, that system subscription, that you're only adhering to the system, to this this essence, this almost Gnostic, uh, you know, special subset of knowledge that we are not going to define or articulate that is necessary to be believed in order to be received into the PCA. That would be system subscription. That's actually not what we articulate. We adhere to the whole confession and catechisms and we declare any distinction or any difference that we may hold with any of the words, phrases, doctrines, propositions in the confession or catechisms. And our presbytery decides whether or not those are allowable to be held. Good faith subscription says, I confess as the confession of my own faith, the Westminster standards, simpliciter and as a whole. Um, and with these two, three, one uh, differences, uh, you having declared those differences, you may take it on good faith that everything else articulated in the standards, I am happy and glad to embrace, endorse, and articulate as my own.
That's good faith subscription. Good faith subscription says, I believe the whole thing. And I may have a difference here and here. But you all determine what what the problem is, if any, with that. Um, that's great. That's a great, that's, that's very clear. Uh, Ryan, you're going to love that segment right there, man. <laughs> Trust me, that'll be clipped. I, I bet. Um, well, as we... As we maybe bring it in uh, for a close, thank you so much for your time. Uh, a few more questions. One of the applications, David, you made in your lecture was to beware the lure of preferment or the lure of um, the inner circle. Being the inner circle, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we're a grassroots denomination, but uh, you know, the Kirk uh, obviously is not a, a grassroots denomination. But right. are, is there an analogous danger uh, to us? We've talked about needing to contend for the faith that we confess, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Is there that danger, especially for young guys in the PCA, that, you know, I'm not going to challenge that difference, I'm not going to stand up here because it might impact my ability down the, down the road? Um, no doubt. We're, we're all sinners, and we all have egos. And, you know, frankly, preachers have bigger egos than most you know we all we all we like to be liked and um some think that the way to get a name is to be a warrior and that's how i'm gonna that's how i'm gonna become a you know I, I become somebody others think of different strategies um, both are equally problematic. To, to, to fail to stand up when you must or to stand up when you shouldn't uh, out of fear or regard for the opinion of men is just sin. To, to speak in order to impress or to fail to speak for fear of offending when you should both are actually driven by pride. And we need to repent of that. And we're all prone to it. It's easy to do. Because we're all weak sinners. And we fear men. And we, we, we need to guard against that. What I was particularly concerned about when I was talking about the danger of ecclesiastical preferment and the inner circle is, you know, the, the, there are... There are names, there are people of influence and importance that the, the Lord has blessed. I'm not, I'm not knocking that. I think there are men out there that I admire and revere because of their faithfulness, the way the Lord has blessed their ministry. And rightly, they have a rightly they have a they have the wide regard of large sections of the church, both in the PCA and well beyond. And and we are grateful for them and we want to sit at their feet and learn from them. Um but because we regard men sometimes too much, we uh, there, there's something about getting tapped by one of the great ones um, that can be really um, dangerous. And we need to be careful of it in our own hearts. Um, I've seen in the Church of Scotland in particular, and let me just say it that way rather than talking about the PCA, the, because the Church of Scotland was definitely not a grassroots denomination. 
and and very much a top-down centralized model of Presbyterianism. Uh, but the the so the power was held centrally, and those sort of powerful individuals would be very strategic in in sort of tapping in in uh, in in co-opting evangelical voices. And the evangelical would think, hey, now I've got a seat at the table. Now, now I can make a difference. When actually what was happening was that they were being used to blunt the evangelical voice and, and sort of neutralize them by, by giving them a representative that they would, they would sort of defer to in the hopes that this representative would do the hard thing and they end up not doing so because now they're in the inside. Now they've become friends with some of these men and it's, it feels like a betrayal of them to be so challenging. It's a very effective strategy to neutralize dissent, to bring the dissenter onto your team. Um, and now dissent is not always the path of faithfulness. I mean, again, I keep warning us about this, the danger from the right flank that this, you know, let's beware of our own hearts that being the contrarian isn't the same thing as being godly and being obedient. And the voice of dissent isn't always the voice of fidelity. Um, so where we can stand together and cheer for something together, we must and we should. And I think we we have to be careful of taking opportunities to speak and to build relationships with people of influence in the denomination. We should do that. Um, but but not being naive about the dangers that we may feel in our own hearts, um, that now that I've made this relationship, now I can't ever challenge hmm. something that this person ever says, like that, because it feels like a betrayal. And in the American South in particular, I have learned in my time here, and I'm still learning sometimes the hard way, uh, relationships matter, loyalties, personal loyalties matter almost more than anything. So once you've built a relationship and you've got personal loyalties in play, it's really, really hard to, to dissent, to go in a different direction. So we've just, we've just got to watch it. We just need to be careful. Um, and, and that sometimes means working extra hard to communicate with the people we're disagreeing with that we're disagreeing with their position, but we do actually care about them as people, and that we're, and that can sometimes feel a bit artificial and 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 over the top. But it, frankly, it's it's work that we need we need to keep doing. That's part of being in the body. It is, and and we live at a time of of really bombastic, polarized political discourse outside the church. We need to work much much harder. To ensure that we don't see that inside the church, um, we need to do better uh, as part of our witness. You know, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, that you have love for one another, and that should show up in the way we disagree. It's easy to love the brothers when we're all agreeing. What about when you don't agree? Hmm. You know, loving differences, loving disagreement, good debate 
that represents each other well, that listens carefully, that's willing to say, you know what, you've persuaded me. I've changed my mind. That's that's godly churchmanship. Um, it's, that's back to principled compromise. I'm never going to betray my core convictions. Those principles are guiding me. But within the the, the sort of orbit of those principles, I, I'm willing to see things differently if you can show me that a different way is better. Um, and that's what we really need. Hmm. That's great. Well, as we close, uh, for both of you, what aspirations do you have for the PCA? What What's encouraging? And we've touched on some of those things. Uh, what also concerns you about the PCA uh, for the future, e- either of you? George, you want to go? Sure. Uh, I I like the trajectory of the PCA. And I think precisely for what I think we discussed earlier, just a lot of clarity has been developed through the pain. And so the like the human sexuality debates, nobody, I hope nobody relished or enjoyed them. I know they were they were painful, but I agree that the the AIC on human sexuality is, is a wonderful document that mm-hmm. that really integrates scripture our, our confession and how we live that out in our polity and so i uh i i am glad for the increased clarity i'm glad for the increased uh review and control and mm-hmm. uh I, I am all for contextualization and seeking ways to reach an increasingly hostile court culture toward christianity i, I just want us to be proud of our confessional roots and, and, and have worship that reflects that. And I really care why this matters to me. Cause sometimes I think people on the right are, are painted as um, legalists or stodgy. It matters to me because I care about people's souls. And I believe that clarity, I believe in the power of the gospel to transform lives uh, through the Holy spirit. And I believe in the clarity of God's word mm to do what God's word does and it never returns void and and it may bring judgment and we hope it brings mercy and grace. And, and so I, I don't, I just hope we have more clarity um, of what we believe using scripture. I hope we can do it. Ironically, I've heard David use that, that word before. I, I agree with that. Um, and uh, I think we need each other. I think in, in, we are going to, I, I think there's a sense that because a certain church and pastor has left and these debates are maybe winding down and, and the overture David put forward seems to be doing well, that we're, we're past this. But I don't, I honestly don't believe we're past anything. I think culturally it's going to get harder for conservative Christians in this country. I'm not trying to be an alarmist. Um, I'm not saying they're going to round us up or anything like that. But because it's going to get harder for us, whatever inclinations there were within the denomination to um, David, you you mentioned in your in your talk about you know being chameleon. Um, you know, I'm with you on this uh, on these things. I believe these things. I hold these convictions, but we hide them. Like that's going to make it harder for for those of us uh, who who don't have that bent. And so, but I, I do think we need each other and um, the PCA is positioned very well, I think in this country, uh, we're a smaller denomination in this country, but we're also one of the the larger or largest uh, reformed Presbyterian denominations in the country. And that positions us uh, very well to, uh, for the great commission. So um, I think there's a lot to be encouraged about, but I also think we can't become uh, co- complacent either. So. 
Yeah, that's good. I don't have a lot to add. I, I would say that um, let's beware of a practical hyper-Calvinism so that we're only ever heard complaining about the kind of evangelism and mission we don't like. You know, contextualization, bad, mis missional, bad, uh, you know, we, we end up sounding like Waldorf and Statler and the Muppets, you know, the two grumpy old men that just complain about every act. And um, if we really believe and embrace our standards as we say we do, and they are informing our piety and our preaching and our discipling and our ministries, um, if they really are the best expression and summary of the teaching of the Bible, then this theology should propel us toward the lost. Amen. We should be planting churches. We should be sending missionaries. You know, I think about Old Princeton. Have you read the two volumes by Calhoun on Old Princeton? Um, the first volume of that, that talks about the student mission. There it is right there, Ryan. Um, the student mission uh, burdens of the, the students, sometimes sometimes like 70% of the student graduates went to the foreign mission field. You're talking about a time when, you know, you go to Burma or somewhere, you're, you maybe are not coming back. There's a pretty good chance. Um, and the, the, the professors were burdened for the loss. There was, there was a passionate pleading evangelism in the pulpits not just apologetics but pleading in the pulpits come to christ without delay urgency for the lost um and you know i'm seeing among some of my brothers who are more conservative in the pca i'm actually seeing church planting the the the, uh, the training and mentoring of new leaders uh, uh, really gifted. I mean, the kind of thing that Jason Olopoulos, a University Reform Church in, in Michigan, is doing. He has he's really thought creatively about developing pipelines for the mentoring of of uh, college graduates before seminary, seminarians during seminary, and even developing a sort of a finishing school post seminary for a for a year, like a fellows program. Where you go and 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 continue to refine, polish, and work on your gifts. Out of that, he's working really hard at, at planting churches and helping men find calls where they can serve fruitfully. So that with Jason, you're not seeing somebody who's just saying no, no, no. We don't like that, and we don't like this, and we don't like the other. He's really he's getting on with it and modeling a positive, healthy uh, vision of ministry that I think is really worth paying attention to and learning from and working at for ourselves. Let's not only always be against things. Let's only be against the things we must be against because we're compelled to it by scripture. We have a lot we're for, and that needs to be the loudest, strongest notes that we're sounding in the courts of the church and out of it. What are we for? Let's get on with it. We need to be for the salvation of the lost and the glory of his name and the discipleship of sinners. Um, and so uh, I, I see some of that happening. We need to do better and keep going um, and build momentum around it. 
but I'm very thankful for what I see in the PCA. Amen. Well, thank you both for your time. Uh, this was excellent discussion and, uh, and very good reminders uh, throughout, especially there at the end. Thank you, David. Thank you, George. You're welcome. I, I still don't know why I was asked, uh, but uh, but I it was a it was a it was a pleasure for sure. It was it was really great being with you guys. The heart of BTS is first and foremost to be faithful, faithful to the Word of God, to the sufficiency of Scripture, to knowing we serve a sovereign Lord. The second component of the heart of BTS is accessibility. We're affordable. We're flexible. We work with students to help them achieve goals. This isn't our journey. It's your journey for serving the Lord. It's your journey that God has called you to. So we pray that while God expands and grows the opportunities that we have, that we never lose sight to provide quality, reformed theological education, faithfully and accessibly, so that we can serve the local church by building leaders for His kingdom.